0: You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. A couple of weeks ago, Karen Yang, who who goes to Providence, uh, a lot of you know her, uh, she said something that's kind of stuck with me for uh, uh, these two weeks. Uh, She was talking about her relationship with God, and she said this. She said, I see God as my dad. Uh, he provides for me, cares for me, and trains me towards engaging in the family business of kingdom work. And for some reason, I haven't been able to shake that, that phrase, the, the, fa- the family business, because uh, really family businesses that are successful and, and long-lasting are really fascinating to me, uh, and I think because they're really rare. Uh, they, they usually don't work, do they? Uh, the most long-lasting family business on record is the Hoshi Hotel in Japan, uh, the Hoshi Hotel has been in business since 718 A.D., and it's been run by the same family for uh, 46 generations, 46 generations. Uh, the Guinness Book of World Records says it's the oldest hotel in the world. It's the longest continuously running business, all in the same family. Uh, and what's amazing about it is they've, they've stuck to the quality of their service even as they've adapted to all the changes in Japan through the centuries. Uh, One article I read this week said that Hoshi has survived the rise and the fall of the samurai, the ninja, many Japanese emperors, and two world wars, 1,300 years, and all they get is this lousy Guinness World Record. It's like, good job, guys. Keep it up. Another 1,300. Uh, There are other notable family businesses that are familiar to us, uh, the H.J. Hines Company uh, founded in in, in 1888, uh, without them we'd all have to eat Hunt's ketchup on our French fries, which would be terrible, right? Heinz is clearly number one. Uh, Mars Incorporated was founded by Frank Mars uh, in 1911, and thanks to the Mars Company, we have the number one selling candy bar in the world, the Snickers bar. And I would eat a Snickers bar right now. I mean, who? I mean, is, they're delicious. They're the best. A little closer to home, the HEB Grocery Company. Founded in 1905 by Florence Butt, and she opened a little grocery store on the first floor of her home in Kerrville, Texas, uh, and that's that one little store has grown to more than 300 stores, and HEB is awesome, isn't it? It's so good. It's such a great company, and it's a family business. In fact, Florence's grandson, Charles, is—you know, he started uh, as a bag boy at HEB when he was eight years old, and today he's the, the CEO uh, of HEB. Now, what is it that makes a family business successful? I read this article this week, and this is one thing I read. I thought it was interesting. A successful family business is one that recognizes the strengths and weaknesses of its family members and makes sure everyone is involved in providing input in day-to-day activities. Most importantly, a family business has the best chance of succeeding when family members believe in the product. If future generations don't have an interest in the family business, they won't possess the original passion that initially built the company. Sounds like the church, doesn't it? Like for the church to work like it's supposed to, everyone's got to be involved. Everyone's got to be aware of their strengths and weaknesses in contributing. Everyone's got to believe in the product. And everyone's going to pass on to the next generation their passion for that product. We are nearing the end of the book of Romans, which we've so enjoyed and spent a lot of time in. And today we come to what seems to be a little family business section uh, in Romans. Uh, if you remember the first 11 chapters of Romans, we've gotten the content of the gospel unpacked for us in just a, a comprehensive way. And the content of the gospel, the gospel is just the good news that everyone who has faith in Jesus Christ is reconciled to God, brought into his family. But not only that, God also promises to change us so that we begin more and more to look like a member of the family, so that we start to look like our dad, so that we start to look like our big brother, Jesus. That's chapter 1 through 11, the content. Chapter 12 through 14, we started looking at the community of the gospel. In other words, once we're brought into the family of God, God actually begins to change the way that we relate to each other, and He forms a new type of community which is based on self-giving love. And today we're going to look at uh, what we would call the cause of the gospel or the mission of the gospel. In other words, now that we're a part of the family, what are we to be about? What's our purpose? What's our mission? Karen uh, Yang said, God is my dad, and he provides for me, and he cares for me. But that's not the ending point of the Christian life, is it? Like We don't say, oh, well, I've got my inheritance squared away, so I'm good. <laughs> I'm just going to wait this thing out. God also trains us and employs us in the family business, and it's our great privilege to be employed in this family business of gospel ministry. And so the question is, how do we follow our father, how do we follow our big brother Jesus in the family business? What does it look like? And I think here in Romans 15 we get a little bit of a clue, because Paul tells us something about his own ministry, uh, his own mission, which I think clues us in a little bit to the nature uh, of, of the mission of God, because Paul's ministry was just an extension of Jesus' ministry. So we need to look at some things he says about it. Disclaimer, what I don't want you to hear today is be just like Paul, okay? I don't want you to hear be just like Jesus. The Apostle Paul was unique in his calling and in the beginning of the church and the expansion of the church. Uh, he had a unique calling to do something that none of us are called to do exactly like him, so don't hear that. Jesus is like Jesus, right? So no one is like him. And yet, in their ministry, I think there's some principles, some things that we can learn about the family business. What does it look like and what are we to be about? Because everyone's called to be involved. We all have a part to play in it. All right, so three descriptors of the gospel ministry that we see here. And and, and the church actually needs all three of these things if it's ever going to fulfill the mission that God has given the church. Here's the first. First thing is the family business of gospel ministry is priestly. It's priestly. Look at uh, Romans 15, starting in verse 15. Romans 15, right there at the end of verse 15. Paul says, because of the grace given to me by God. So, grace was given to him by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So, Paul here sees his ministry as a priestly service. He was not a priest in the technical sense of the word, but his, his ministry, his mission was priestly uh, in nature. Uh, a priest, if you know uh, about how the Scripture unfolds, a priest is an intercessor, a mediator, a go-between, right? So, God uh, wants people to have access to Him, to be able to come into His presence, to worship Him freely. But ever since sin entered the world uh, in Genesis chapter 3, there's never been such a thing as unmediated access to God, right? Uh, We don't just waltz into the presence of God. We don't just hang with God. God is not your bro. God, God is not your peer. God is not your equal. We don't come into the presence of God on our own terms. He's unapproachable on our own merit. We need mediation. I was reading in uh, my time, uh, devotional time this week, I was reading uh, the book of 1 Samuel. And in 1 Samuel chapter 6, the ark of the Lord is stolen by the Philistines. And then God begins to afflict the Philistines because they have the Ark of the Lord, which is his presence on earth. And they're like, we got to get rid of this thing because we're (laughs) we're dying here, literally. And so they, they sent the Ark back to Israel. And in 1 Samuel 6, the Ark ends up back in this town in Israel called Beth Shemesh. And then it says that God killed some of the people of Beth Shemesh. Some of the men died because they looked upon the Ark. So it's like this Raiders of the Lost Ark moment where they looked upon the ark, and what they did, they treated God's presence, the ark of God, as a curiosity, right? They thought they could just check God out on their own terms. And yet the ark of God was to be treated as holy because God is holy. Whenever the ark was transported or taken somewhere, it was always covered in a veil. Uh, it, was, it was kept, it was uh, housed in the holy of holies, which was the inner sanctum of the sanctuary of God because it represented the very presence of God. And the high priest would, would actually go in once a year into the Holy of Holies to make atonement for his own sins and for the sins of the people. And he would put some blood, the blood of a sacrificed animal, uh, on the mercy seat, which was the lid or the covering of the Ark of the Covenant, and, and atone for the sins of the people once a year. So there was no such thing as unmediated access to God. But the men of Beth Shemesh treated it treated the ark in a cavalier way, and so many of them died. And this is what they said, the ones that did not die. In 1 Samuel 6, verse 20, it says, Then the men of Beth Shemeth said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And that's the real question, isn't it? Like, who can stand? Who can have access to God? Who can be acceptable in the presence of God? And the role of the priest in Israel was to bring people to God. Like, using the God-appointed means for access, the God-appointed means to make one acceptable, and that's the key there, right? Because it wasn't the priest that made someone acceptable. God made the person acceptable. God had instituted a system of offerings and sacrifices whereby people could come to Him, worship freely, be in His presence, and be acceptable. But the priest was to mediate that system of of offerings and sacrifices. So, the heart of the priest was to bring people into the presence of God. The heart of the priest was to see people have access God. But Paul says something really astounding here uh, in verse 16, if you look at it. He's saying in verse 16 that even Gentiles, that is non-Jews, are acceptable to God and can can have access to God. Now, this was scandalous for a Jew to say because traditionally, Jews were excluded from the temple worship uh, in Jerusalem. In fact, one time Paul was accused of bringing a Gentile into the temple, uh, and the Jews wanted to kill him for it. In fact, listen to this. Don't turn there, but just listen. It happened in Acts chapter 21. Acts 21. Some Jews from Asia seeing Paul in the temple… "'stirred up the whole crowd, and they laid hands on him, "'crying out, "'Men of Israel, help! "'This is the man who's teaching everyone everywhere "'against the people and the law in this place. "'Moreover, he even brought Greeks or Gentiles "'into the temple and has defiled this holy place, "'for they had previously seen Trophimus, "'the Ephesian, with Paul in the city, "'and they supposed that Paul had brought him "'into the temple. "'He hadn't brought him into the temple, "'but they thought he did. "'Then all the city was stirred up, "'and the people ran together. "'They seized Paul. "'They dragged him out of the temple, "'and at once the gates were shut.' And they were seeking to kill him. See, uh, Gentiles were excluded, right? They, they, they were not allowed in. Religiously, culturally, ethnically, in every way, they were, they were kept out of the temple of God. They could not have access. And, and what the Jews were saying was, kick this Gentile lover out and kick his Gentile friends out. They can't have access. Two weeks ago, um, today actually, two, it was a Sunday evening, uh, I, got, I got home and it was the first time I, I saw that nine-second video of those OU fraternity guys. Uh, most of you have seen this, uh, doing that sort of a racist chant uh, on, on their party bus. And I just clicked on a link, it was a news story, I didn't know what I was about to see, and it was just a nine-second video, uh, but I was immediately overcome by emotion, right? It was like somebody just knocked the wind out of me, just punched me right in the gut. And I think it's because it was this moment of unscripted reality where the the curtain was pulled back on the human heart, On the part of the human heart that is so prone to segregate, so prone to discriminate, the part of the human heart that's so prone to exclude others, to say, you'll never get in, you'll never be one of us, you won't have access the heart of a priest is the complete opposite of that, isn't it? A priest says, I want you to have access. I want you to be on the inside, not just with me and my people. I want you to be on the inside with God. And as Christians, we have this priestly role. We can bring all kinds of people in and they can have access to God. Now, how is that possible? Look at verse 16. Paul says, in verse 16, that he is in the priestly service of the gospel of God. In other words, he's mediating the gospel. The gospel is the God-appointed means by which someone can be made uh, acceptable uh, to God. That's how Gentiles can be made acceptable. It's the good news about Jesus. Hebrews chapter 9, listen to the gospel. When Christ appeared as high priest, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. And so the gospel tells us that Jesus was not only the priest, he was the sacrifice. He he entered in and gave himself. He spilled his own blood that we might have eternal redemption, that all types of people from all times could be acceptable to him, would have access to him. So part of being in the family business of gospel ministry is that we would mediate the message of Christ's sacrifice that we would be a go between that we'd be an intercessor that we'd be a priest of sorts. The apostle Peter says that if you are a Christian you're part of a royal priesthood. And that's kind of a big deal. It's pretty awesome. It's a high privilege. So let me ask you, do you have a priestly heart? Like, do you have a heart to bring people to God? I mean, who do you know in your life that is not yet a worshiper of God? Do you intercede for them by praying for them? Do you invite them in in some way? Do you invite them into your home, into your life, into your friend group, into your church community, into your GC, into conversation about Jesus? The family business of gospel ministry is priestly, inviting others in. But that's not all it is. Uh, it's also prophetic. Look at verse 18. It's prophetic. If the role of the priest is to bring people to God, you could say that the role of the prophet is to bring God to the people, right? So, the priestly role is intercessory, Uh, The the, the prophetic role is proclamational. Something is being proclaimed so that the people can know God and His Word and His promises and His character and and ultimately put their faith in God. The priest was to be the mouthpiece of God. A priest is never called to speak their own words. They're they're, they're called to speak God's Word. A priest was never called to promote their own opinion, their own ministry, but God's ministry, God's Word. There's There's no such thing as like Elijah Ministries International, Right? like jeremiah.com. This is not the way the prophet was uh, to, op- to, to operate. The prophet was to speak the very word of God. And the reason was because people needed God. The people didn't need the prophet. They needed the God of the prophet. So they were to be at 100% about God and, and empowered by God. Now, Paul says the family business uh, of the gospel ministry is prophetic in nature. Look at verse 18. Look what he says about it. He says, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. So he presents himself as an instrument in the hands of Jesus. And he says, really, the only thing worth talking about here, the only thing of value in my ministry is what Christ is, is accomplishing through me. Like, Christ is the agent, Christ is the initiator, and, and, and the, the value of ministry that I'm doing only comes as Christ does it through me. This is not the Apostle Paul Enterprises. It's, it's Jesus the Son family business, right? And so, he's speaking the Word of Jesus. Paul is merely employed in the family business. Now, what is the goal of this ministry? Look at verse 18 again. If I can find it. except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. This is the goal of the family ministry, or as in Romans one five, it says, to call the Gentiles to the obedience that comes uh, from faith. In other words, to, to introduce those who don't know God, trust God, and obey God to God so they can know God, trust God, and obey God. Uh, in Romans 1 5, it says, Obedience comes from faith in Christ. As someone is called to faith in Jesus, they are in turn uh, changed that they might love and obey God for their good and God's glory for the rest of their life. That's the goal of the family business of gospel ministry. Now, how does Jesus accomplish this? Right at the end of verse 18, by word, And by deed, so Jesus accomplishes the goal of bringing Gentiles into to obedience of faith through the word and deed, words and deeds uh, of His people. As God's people proclaim God's word uh, with their words, and as they demonstrate God's word with their actions, uh, people come to faith uh, in Jesus. And so, uh, in gospel ministry. uh, the verbal and the visual come together, don't they? Uh, so that people uh, can, can not only hear God's Word, but they can see God's Word lived out. And this is exactly how Jesus ministered. Uh, Jesus was always proclaiming things about the kingdom, but He was also, also demonstrating the values of the kingdom with His actions. Matthew nine thirty five. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, but he was also doing something else. He was healing every disease and sickness. He was demonstrating compassion. This was the ministry of a prophet, proclaiming God's word and demonstrating God's word through actions and deeds. So, as Christ's followers, we always are to hold word and deed together, right? We can't just say God is compassionate and never demonstrate compassion in our lives. Never enter into the pain of the world. On the other hand, we can't just do deeds of mercy, but never talk about our merciful God, who is the source of all mercy. Otherwise, people will never come to know uh, this God. Word and deed are held together in this prophetic ministry. Now, what's the power behind this ministry? Look at uh, about midway through verse 19. Paul says that all of this happens by the power of the Spirit of God. In other words, the Spirit of God is the one who gives potency to our words. The Spirit of God is the one who enables our good deeds, who gives us the vigor that we need to live like Jesus lived. And I was trying to summarize this in my own words this week. This is what I came up with. The Spirit of God communicates the Word of God and demonstrates the works of God through the people of God in order to bring people, or bring people to faith in the Son of God. Isn't that amazing? You see how the Father, Son, and Spirit are all involved in the prophetic ministry, gospel ministry of bringing people to faith in Him. And guess what? We are too. We are included in this Trinitarian mission to redeem the world. It's a high privilege that we get to participate with what the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are doing. We get to bring, people to, we get to bring God out to people, which is a prophetic ministry. When I was uh, a student over here at UT, um, there was a group of folks that used to come out once a week uh, to the campus, and they would say that they had sort of a prophetic ministry. Uh, Brother Jed, Sister Cindy, uh, and there was a young guy named uh, Brother Rick. And they would, uh, each week they would come and they would stand right on the edge of campus, right on Guadalupe, uh, just across from the co-op, and they would hold a Bible and signs with like really colorful flames on them, and, uh, and they would yell at students as they walked by and they would uh, condemn students, and they would, they would, you know, tell girls that they were unchaste, yet they used not-so-nice words to describe that. Uh, and they would tell uh, guys that they were fornicators, and they let us know as we were on our way to class that we were also all on the way to hell. And uh, so one day, I just had enough of this And uh, as a Christian. And so I thought, you know, Brother Rick was out there yelling at people, and I was like, I'm gonna have a conversation with Brother Rick. And so I tried to—I went up to him and—, and And I just tried to ask him a question. I was like, hey, why are you always telling people about their sin and the wrath of God, but you never tell them about the grace and the forgiveness that's in Jesus? And he got up to me real close and he said, I have a ministry of condemnation. I'm like, Lord... And I was like, well, for some reason I thought of John three seventeen when I heard the word condemnation. And I was like, but didn't God say that he sent his son into the world not to condemn the world, but to save the world through him? And Brother Rick got up close to me and pointed at me, and he said, quote on, brother. And so I knew the conversation was not going anywhere at that point. I, I didn't know how to recover from that. Honestly, I didn't know the next verse. I couldn't quote on. Needless to say, though, Brother Rick was not an effective minister on the UT campus, right? He never really gained a hearing over there. But it's not because he was irrelevant or uncool in his approach, and he was, right? It's not because he wore funny clothes and had sort of a backwoods vibe to him, and he did. That's not why he was ineffective. He was ineffective because his words and his deeds did not point people to Jesus, you did not get from His words and His deeds, Jesus. How do you know someone is empowered by the Spirit of God? Their words and their deeds point to Jesus because the Spirit of God always points to Jesus, always glorifies Him. And all He could do was condemn. When we think about gospel ministry, we need to remember that where our power comes from. Our power does not come from being relevant or cool Our power doesn't come from being clever or smart or innovative or strategic. Our power doesn't come from using all the right words in all the right ways. Our power doesn't come from any form of human wisdom at all. Our power comes from the Spirit of God, Christ working through us. So, let me ask you this. Do others hear Jesus through you? Do others see Jesus through you? Is there someone in your life whom you need to proclaim the gospel to in both word and in deed? And you know what? When you do, it's going to look and feel really ordinary. It's probably going to happen at a really ordinary place, at a really ordinary moment. And yet God is going to have extraordinary power behind that moment. I want to ask you one other thing related to this. Are you growing personally in the knowledge of God's word so that this is what comes out of you when it comes time to speak. See, the world doesn't really need your good advice. (laughs) The world doesn't really need my good, informed opinion on things. What the world needs is the Word of God. And so are you growing in this such that it comes out of you? What's in you actually comes out of you. When God's Word comes out of us, we're serving in a prophetic way. So the family business, on the one hand, is priestly, meaning we bring people to God that they might have access. It's also prophetic, meaning we bring God to people that they might know and understand God. And then lastly, and I won't say as much about this last way, it's kingly. The family business of gospel ministry is kingly, or as John Stott likes to call it, it's pioneering, meaning it's always expanding. It's always taking new ground for the, for the kingdom of God. It's always reaching new communities, new cultures. This is nothing new. This is God's business plan from the very beginning, right? What what was the the first thing he said to people in Genesis 1? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with image bearers uh, of the king. So the business plan was always to spread the kingdom over the entire earth. Look at verse 19. Romans 15, verse 19, the second half of verse 19 Paul says, so from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. And so, Paul uh, gets geographical uh, here. Uh, He he says from Jerusalem all the way around to, to, to Illyricum. And so, he, he paints this picture of this circuit around the Mediterranean region from the far southeast corner in Jerusalem all the way up to the far northwest corner in the city, little city called Illyricum, and all the places in between. Uh, and he's, he's taken the gospel there. And when he says that, he doesn't mean he's preached the gospel to every person in this region. What he means is he's been a part of planting churches in all the strategic cities in this region where Christ is not yet named where he is not worshiped, so that from those churches, the gospel will continue to radiate out and saturate those cultures with the gospel. Here's what I love, though. I love that he names specific cities because it means he's talking about actual people and actual cultures. When you and I say God so loved the world, we need to think about real people, real places, real cultures, don't we? I love this quote from Leslie Newbegin. It's really helpful. He says, It's too easy for us to use the biblical word world as a mere abstract noun without really thinking of the concrete reality which the word denotes. Like to speak of the redemption of the world or the judgment of the world without accepting the hard geographical meaning of the word. If we talk about the world without meaning India and China and Africa and Russia and South America, as well as our own people, without meaning this actual earth and the nations which people it, we're talking unbiblical nonsense. So you see, Paul's account of his own ministry uh, and mission here, I think, rescues us from having an overly generalized view of God's mission. It's not just that God loves the globe, like, generically, right? He, he took, Paul took specific journeys to specific places. I think Paul's account here also rescues us from having an overly sentimentalized view of the mission of God too, doesn't it? It's not just that God hearts the world, right? Like the missional love of God is not sentimental and sappy. It's, it's really gritty. It's costly. Like it's always costly to move toward others in love. It, it's work. And Paul's mission captures that, doesn't it? Paul ends this little section with uh, a quote from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 52. Look at verse 21 here in Romans 15. He quotes Isaiah, but as it is written, those who have never been told of Him, the Messiah, will see, and those who have never heard of Him, the Messiah, will understand. Those will see, and those will understand. So Isaiah had looked ahead into the future, and he had prophesied that Gentile nations would one day come to know the Messiah. In other words, people from every tongue, every tribe, every nation on the earth would come into the people of God, would be added to his family. This is the missionary heart of God. God is always adding people to his family, and he's, the, the family's not done yet. It's not complete. Ten years ago... Um, Amy and I, my wife and I, had this gnawing feeling that someone was missing in our family. And I don't mean that we had misplaced one of our children. Um, I meant, we we had this deep sense that our family was not yet full yet. And we couldn't control that, uh, but we just kind of had this together, had this sense of that. Now, about a year later, our little Sophie uh, showed up. And uh, Sophie is nine years old um, now, and she brightens our home. She makes us laugh all the time. Uh, she is just this joy to be around. And, and you know what, We can't imagine our family without Sophie, and Amy and I've talked before, like I can't imagine if any of our girls weren't here. Our family wouldn't be the same. Do you ever think about do you ever have a deep sense that someone is missing from the family of God? That there are those out there that are not yet a part of the family of Christ, and our family is not complete without them. We're not full without them. And and that one day, when they become a part of the family, we'll look back and say, I can't imagine our family without them. I can't imagine what it would be like not having one of you sitting here. The heart of God wants to fill up his family. So let me ask you this. Who are the people in your life that you need to move towards with the gospel so that they might see Jesus and understand Jesus? It might be people that are geographically and culturally near to you. It might be people that are geographically and culturally far away from you, and mission encompasses both those things, and it encompasses everything in between. It's some combo of those things. My next-door neighbors are geographically near to me. They live right there. Uh, but they are culturally far from me because they grew up in India. Uh, they're from the country of India, and our experience of the world has been very different. And yet, God so loved the world. God loves real people. And the kingdom is always expanding to new communities and cultures uh, so that more and more people could come into the family. When we think about the family ministry, the, fa- the family business of gospel ministry, uh, I think we should, should realize that everyone is needed in that because every gift is needed in the church. Some of you are more priestly in your gifting. Some of you are more prophetic and proclamational. Some of you are more kingly, more organizational, more pioneering. Uh, but, but, God, but Jesus wants to work through us corporately. He wants to work together through His body to carry out His mission. And we can rest in this. Jesus is all those things perfectly. He's our great high priest granting us access to God. He's our great prophet who explains and exposits and declares God to us, and he's our great king ruling over us uh, in love. But even though he's perfect in all those things and he could fulfill the family business, he could complete his mission without us, you know what he says? I want to involve you guys. I want you to have a role. It's a great privilege that we get to be involved in the mission of God. Let's thank him for that. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.